1: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
2: and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me,
0: Tom Kerridge. I'm Miriam Nice and I'll be your host today on the BBC Good Food Podcast with Chef Tom Kerridge. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the real cost of meat. Joining Tom and I today is Will Beckett, co-founder of Hawksmoor, the award-winning restaurant group. Welcome to the podcast, Will. How are you doing?
3: I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. And what is it about Hawksmoor that makes it so special?
3: Well, oh, that's a really good question. I think from a, from a kind of service point of view, maybe it's a really weird combination of kind of people just being themselves, casual uh, environment, but really, really high standards. And then maybe more germane to this, we, we source 90% of our produce in the UK. We think unbelievably hard about what we buy and how we treat it. Um, and obviously nothing more so than beef.
0: I understand that you guys do things a little bit differently and that you actively support sort of traditional British farming methods, so grass and like hay fed over grain. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah. I mean, we've built it up over, and the first Hawksmoor opened 16 years ago, um, and we just, at the time, we sourced specifically longhorn cattle and we sourced it from, uh, from Yorkshire. And we knew the farmer very well and we, we used to travel up there. And now, we, 16 years later, we've got nine restaurants in the UK. We've also got one in New York, um, which is a, a different thing. But the UK restaurants source from right across the country. We probably buy from 500-ish independent farms. We've got a 30-page spec for beef that covers really kind of the whole life cycle of cattle from kind of genetics to time on pasture to uh, all sorts of of different things the age the hanging the butchery etc and because we buy from so kind of wide a network of farms we're able to kind of triage quality if you like so we we really just pick the top bracket of beef Um, and we try to get to know farmers, you know, and have as little distance as humanly possible between us and them. Um, but actually, obviously, there is a, there is a little bit, which is kind of a world class hanging facility, um, and butchery. But it's a it's a it's a really really special thing, difficult to replicate, which I I know because we've tried to kind of go and replicate it in the states with one restaurant. But yeah, we've been working at doing that for sixteen years.
0: Great, and you mentioned butchery. I was just going to ask Tom, what's their kind of part between farm and plate? What What does a skilled butcher bring?
2: Oh, my God, there's so much. That, that <laughs> bit between the understanding of um, going from the farm to the abattoir. I mean, the abattoir is such a hugely important part of it, that process. You know, the cattle that's been treated well, looked after, you know, and then that final point, that, fa- that, that final, that makes a big difference. All the work that goes into breeding and rearing cattle to that point there can go all horribly wrong. So you need hugely skilled people to be at that point. Then through to the butchery process, the breaking down, the understanding of the, the animal and breaking it down into its different kind. and and the dry aging process that's another one that's super important to flavor um and all of these things take time, and they all take a skill set. They all take human beings and people, and they all cost money because time spent doing stuff is money. And 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 you can see, you know. So when I know we're talking about prices and stuff in this particular episode of of, of what is meat and why it costs so much, and you know, you can buy and it's just something that we hear all the time, and I'm sure Will hears it all the time. Why would I pay that much for a state when I can buy just buy the same thing from the supermarket? Well you you can't that's the the question is you you cannot you can buy a piece of meat from a supermarket but not that's been treated with the same respect the same understanding like will spend that time visiting farms understanding what's going on that process that farmers give to individual cattle the love that understanding that goes into what makes meat taste incredible um, the, the rearing process, the food the, all of those factors come into play when it comes to that end point, and this is where the skill set of a chef comes in because you know all the work has been done by actually everybody else all we 've got to do is that last tiny little percentage of putting it in a pan, resting it, and ser- sending it. you know all the work is done beforehand, and that 's where so much of the cost comes in you know it, it, the cost of eating a piece of meat or coming to a restaurant and having something to eat it 's the cost of that meat coming to you getting into you as well as you know there's the cost of the restaurant which are absolutely ginormous and huge that so many people don't take into account but that process of you know a cattle, cattle may be 18 months two years old before it's even got to slaughter so there's two years there before your rump steak has got to you and that has value and cost it feels like a lot of pressure
0: as well. Like you know that two years and all that effort and all that skill has gone into it and now you're like, better cook
2: it right. <laughs> that's yeah. quite weighty pressure. Exactly, yeah. And that's what we tell our chefs all
3: the time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we do actually. I mean, that's something I'll kind of think about food waste, which obviously is an important point in, it of, in and of itself. But, you know, if you, if you spoil a steak, do have the thought, actually, an animal died. Yes. And that part was the end, is that you spoiled it and now we've got to throw it in the bin. It is, it's is—it's unbelievably important. I think there is a pressure to it of getting that right and kind of honouring the existence of the animal by by making sure you do things properly.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned ageing. So can you talk me through a bit bit about that? Well,
3: yeah, there's various... I mean, there's, Well, there's two main kinds of ageing, right? There's wet ageing and, and dry ageing. And probably the easiest way to think about wet ageing is you backpack it essentially I mean, it's slightly different but it's not massively different so a lot of imported meat really they backpack it it takes its sweet time to get here and then that is considered the wet age of the of the product and I have heard people speak up wet aging as a as a as a, a way of doing it. it it's not what we believe in so we think about dry aging which really is being put in a kind of in a controlled environment where you look at in particular, kind of heat and humidity in the room. And actually, it's probably the only part of the process, I think, that is sort of technical, where sort of investment in facilities is is the big thing, whereas farming is a very kind of human, natural thing, and the chef end of things is, is a very skilled thing. But this is, I think, mostly about the quality of the room. Um, and what that does is it essentially kind of reduces the meat, if you like, it, it the the water content of the meat evaporates the meat loses weight and intensifies in flavour um, so actually if you if you try eating unaged beef it's not that pleasant at all really is it it's kind of it's a bit watery but when you've had something that's been properly aged you get that really kind of amazing beefiness to it, especially kind of grass-fed. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Beefiness as a flavour note for beef, but uh, <laughs> grass-fed beef really does have a beefiness to it. My
2: wine tastes really winey I know, I think <laughs> I've actually used that tasting note before, but
3: um, you know, grain-fed beef often tastes sweet and, and grass-fed beef tastes beefy and uh, you, you, you get an intensity and the, and the texture of the meat changes completely so I think it's it's a really really key part of the process Um it obviously takes much less time than the two years on the farm but those sort of 28 35 days in in a really good aging room is absolutely the difference between good and exceptional.
0: And does it take a special person to do it? We talk about, but is it a butchery job or is it done in the restaurant?
3: Like, my personal view is that it is best done in a specific facility done for that, and actually they have to be quite big. You do sometimes walk into steak restaurants, don't you, and you see an aging room. And my take on that, and Tom might disagree, is that it's partly theatre, and I, I like theatre in restaurants as it happens. Uh, I mean, the amount of beef that you have to go through in a beef-led restaurant, there's no way you could possibly age it all on site, certainly not on central London rents.
2: No, I, I completely agree. If you think you're aging something for 28 days, but you're selling, I don't, I don't know, you're doing 100 people for lunch, 150 people for dinner every single day and they're having steak, that's a huge amount of steak that you've got to hold to even get to 28, 35 days time. So you, you, you are buying meat from, an, from somebody who is aging it for you with, with the special room. With the, Also, as well as chefs. We cook, we're not butchers. That age approach is really important. You know, it, it, the turnover, the understanding. In a restaurant doors are opening and closing all the time people are moving things are happening in an aging room in an aging process they're almost sealed they don't move things are happening like it's just sat there with with the correct air circulation drying out the meat in the correct process you know for restaurants you'll you'll see it there but you'll see big fridges with salt blocks in them as their drying space but that's actually they're only sitting in there in a in an environment that is i suppose slightly replicated to where it has been aged for once it's come, it's come in off the butcher's in the morning, it's put there. It's looking looks lovely hanging on a butcher's hook for show, but that'll be sold by the evening most of the time
1: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
0: It's all those kind of jobs and like centres that you just don't really think about, I think, when you're eating some meat. I think there was a place I visited which made uh, cured ham and they'd gone to such lengths to work out because they used to do it in like caves and they sort of worked out what yeah. the humidity, what the temperature, what, you know, all of that and then had to work that out. So like, that's someone's job to work that out and then replicate it Yeah, in I mean, Ham's a
3: great example. Spanish hams, for example, yeah. you know, you... you You hear about the kind of the Cinco Jotas ham and the ham. That's not how you pronounce ham, but Cinco Jotas ham. Uh, And, you know, the pigs and the acorns, etc. But actually, it's these unbelievable, huge aging rooms with just hams everywhere. And the technology that goes into maintaining humidity, airflow, temperature is unbelievable to see. But you're right. It's a hidden cost.
0: Um, So what about steak then. So, Tom, I was going to ask you, what's your favourite cook? Because I know you sell different varieties for people to choose from in some of your
2: places. We do. We do all sorts and we move... and it kind of moves throughout the year. Sirloin, for me, is lovely. It's got great flavor. Ribeye is fantastic for that little bit of fat, that the eye that goes through it. The only problem with the ribeye steak that many guests will pick up on, there's a kind of a sinew line that runs across the top of it that some people then complain that their steak is chewy. And you get, it's not the steak that's chewy. It's, you know, it's the physical breakdown of an animal. Um, fillet is one that always sells no matter where you are. However, it's probably my least favorite in terms of flavor-wise. Um, in terms of profile from it, for what you get from it. Um, But when we first opened the Hand of Flowers, we always had rump steak on. Now, I am a huge fan of rump steak. We don't have it on anywhere because people complain that it's chewy. Like, it's and it, it you know rump steak you have to use your teeth that's right yeah you do have to chew it but the flavor that you can get from a, a dry well aged rump steak for me i think is absolutely fantastic so i'm i'm a big fan of rump steak or sirloin steak as well where it's got where, where you have to use your teeth a little bit more and you drive that flavor out of it using your mouth
0: so give me give me a recipe then for your rump steak the best I, best way to
2: serve it seriously i mean it, it's it's um hot oil
0: yeah
2: and it's butter and you cook them in, so you take the butter and you caramelise it so the butter is foaming before you put the steak in and it's heavily seasoned as well so you've got and you want kind of like a kind of like a pavé it's called a pavé rump steak so it's it's a block of it rather than it being a thin slice seasoned it up plenty of salt not pepper we don't put pepper on at the beginning because the pepper if you're putting it in a hot pan pepper actually burns so we, we salt plenty of salt and what the salt does it actually draws a little bit of moisture and then it cools is a crust on it so as you're frying it and cooking it in hot oil and butter it gets this beautiful crust and you keep turning it around turn it around and not blackened but really caramelized like a really lovely thick crust on it and you can keep feeding it knobs of butter because it's cooking at a high temperature and instead of turning the temperature down you control the temperature by adding more fat so as you can as you add more fat to it it controls it and then just at the point where you think it's around about rare big squeeze of lemon juice lots and lots of basting, take it off, leave it to rest, pour over the fat, leave it to drip in it and just sit in it and then 15 minutes rest, then serve it and it's amazing and you carve it against the grain, not with the grain on a rump steak so so it helps to break it down so it doesn't feel quite as chewy when you're eating it.
0: That sounds great. And all that butter is the sauce or would you
2: serve anything else? Yeah, you can turn that butter into the sauce or, I mean, you just serve the steak. The butter is the butter is there as part of the cooking process, not part of the eating process. And again, that's something that, that costs a lot of money to be using that amount of butter. Okay, but what that does is it helps the steak get cooked to that beautiful perfection, okay? And it's almost seen as a waste product. But that's... That's an added cost that's gone on to not just the cost of the steak, it's what you're using to cook it with. I know Will Cook, they cook slightly differently at Hawkswell. They use a lot of big grill sections, don't you? There's not so much pan frying in butter, is there?
3: No, it's funny. I mean, I was going to say, oh, I know when Hugh, my business partner, when he talks about steak, he always starts with no fat. And I was going to say, oh, but Hugh says, and I thought, (laughs) Why would I? Why would I contradict Tom Kerridge on a recipe? <laughs> uh, ridiculous. But no. So we so we do everything over live fire, um, charcoal. So you know at home using a barbecue, and 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 really, you know we 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 season by kind of throwing sea salt uh, or smoked sea salt at the uh, at the steak, um, really until it won't stick anymore. And then cook it over open flame, or even in a pan, like an extremely hot pan—one that it sort of almost hurts to hold your hand over, kind of thick pan—and uh, and then and then cook it with no fat whatsoever. But yeah, it's just a, it's a different way of doing things. I think yeah. the, the 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 key thing, really, and this this goes back to what we've been talking about, is really it's 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 the farmer. <laughs> that has done most of the work for you. And of course, then you've got the ageing and you've got the butchering, that's important. But certainly if you're a home cook, your job really is not to mess it up. Um, that's the key. The, the The ingredient is the key thing with steak, I think.
0: Um, I think one thing we need to discuss as well is like the environmental impact of eating meat.
3: Yes, yeah, really interesting. I mean, we talked about the cost of meat, didn't we? And, and you know, if you come to one of our restaurants, you go to one of Tom's restaurants, I I think you could say, you know, there is meat that is relatively high cost. But I think really meat has a cost, whether you want to wear it in the price of the meat or you want to wear it elsewhere. I mean, cheap meat, especially of the worst kind, which actually there isn't a huge amount of the worst kind in this country, but the worst kind of meat has a cost. It's cheap to buy, but the cost is environmental or it's health and it's it's worn on a more societal level, if you like. So when we think about that, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever that cows are a source of greenhouse emissions, right? That's 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 well known. But there aren't many industries. Most industries produce greenhouse gases. There aren't many that are source and sink, if you like. Um, forestry is one, but agriculture is one. They can both capture uh, carbon emissions as well. And I think probably that's where we focus. If you think about the idea that there's a kind of a source and a sink in... And that they're forestry and agriculture. That's what we focus on. So the farms that we work with, part of that document, part of the specification, also includes kind of rewilding. I think we are we are kind of well, the farms that we work with are responsible for planting about hundred thousand trees a year. Um, we we try to only work with people that do what we what Tom and I would maybe refer to as regenerative agriculture. But really, it's it's a kind of traditional farming that isn't intensive use of land actually can try to sequester carbon back into the soil um, so there is no doubt that, that cows produce methane but but we try to work at the absolute best end of it in terms of in terms of becoming carbon neutral I think that's just something that societally we've all we've all thought we could do more at right we've so we've we've done a lot of work on reducing carbon footprint we've gone, you have to offset then to become a carbon neutral. But really, in our minds, that's kind of the beginning of the journey. So those 500 farms are all going to, on the next two years, uh, work on their own carbon footprints. We are trying to reduce that further. So we've also switched to green electricity. Um, we're switching all our bulbs to LED. We, all our food waste goes to biogas. It's, it's just something that we have taken really seriously because I, I think it's something that sort of behoves us all to do well now.
0: I think you, is it right that your staff are like using bikes to get to work and things like that?
3: Yeah, we do all that kind of stuff as well. We encourage bike use. We, um, you know, we, 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 we subsidize bikes. We, we've, we've done all sorts of things. We trained 150 people on, uh, on, on kind of carbon and, and sustainability. We've got green teams in all of our restaurants. It's, it's quite a big thing for us now.
0: And what's the response been from the staff and customers?
3: From the staff, it's certainly been, it's been great. I think people I think people generally want to be part of a place they can feel proud of, right? Part of something that is part of the solution or, or doing things well. And, and we get a really, really good response from our staff. I think probably the response from customers is relatively neutral, by which I kind of mean I think people who have really bought into Hawksmoor it's such, an, it's such a kind of logical next step. You know, we've always cared about that sort of thing. We've always cared about ethics in farming and all, all sorts of things. So it probably doesn't feel like a big thing. But I, I don't know, actually. I don't know how many customers choose to come because there's an integrity to it or because of the way we think about sustainability and how many come because they like really nice steak. Um, my guess is that there are, there are some of the former and a lot of the latter. Um, but, yeah, it, I think really we do it not because it will... Drive anyone coming in it's just it's the kind of company we want to be
0: um, okay so if people are gonna buy meat themselves have you got any kind of practical advice or ordering it in restaurants um if you got any practical advice for people what should they be looking for
3: well maybe maybe tom's the right person in terms of in terms of uh the quality of the meat but in terms of what we've just been talking about i, I think probably a, a reasonably good rule of thumb is if you're able Eat less, eat better. Um, I think we could probably all do with eating a little bit less meat. And I, I don't feel uncomfortable saying that actually as someone who owns a meat restaurant. Um, and I think we should be eating better meat. And I'm I'm really conscious, by the way, that that's the, 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 there's a tendency for that argument to kind of run into... Well-off people can eat meat, and and less well-off people can't. And I don't think that's right at all. Um, but I do think we can kind of make an effort to eat less. I think we could focus on uh, eating things that are reared traditionally. You can still you can still get that, um, and think a little bit about unusual cuts of meat for beef, for example. I think I think I read in Henry Dimbleby's Food Report that fifty percent of meat in this country is mince. Actually, Tom raised his eyebrows because he'll know immediately that that's a staggering statistic. If you think about, but what happens to the rest of the cow? So, if you can think about buying things that are the less obvious things, actually, that helps. Um, I don't know what you think on the kind of on the how to make sure you're getting the best stuff.
2: It's very, it's very difficult isn't it, when it comes to asking people to cook at home because all of us are very guilty, and that's every single one of us, of having this kind of like repertoire that we go to of go-to dishes that we always cook, you know, whether it's busy lifestyle, busy, you know, you've got kids, you've got you've got to get something cooked, you, you're doing a dinner party favourite, whatever it is, most of them will involve either doing a roast dinner, uh, some form of steak, or a minced beef dish, and you know, they're, they're always the go-to ones, and then what happens then is that supermarkets don't always end up stocking shins of beef or oxtail or all the other little bits you know brisket although brisket is beginning to come into play a little bit more but all those other cuts of meat that, that they don't appear to be there because supermarkets don't sell them because everyone's still cooking bolognese sauce
0: and having like inexpensive things that you can choose are perhaps a little bit different maybe that and encourage more places yeah. to stock them yeah, I mean, like, you know, like oxtail
3: at home we we you know, do the spag bowl and lasagna and stuff, the mint stuff. But every now and then my wife will just do a vegan uh, one or a vegetarian one with kind of, you know, protein, kind of corn type stuff. And actually the kids don't really notice and uh, it is a good way of, of of cutting things. But yeah, I agree. I agree with what you said.
0: And have you got any tips for getting the best from um, a piece of meat that you've spent a lot of money on, so a whole joint or something?
2: If you've bought a joint of beef, you've got a four rib of beef, for example, or you've bought a centre cup fillet for a special occasion, or you want to make sure that you're not overcooking that, you know, or even just a lovely coat to boeuf, like a big fat um, ribeye steak for two. You know, the the idea of of spending that sort of money and then getting it wrong without that skill set that chefs have every day it's trying to think of a cheaty way of doing it. And I'll always say, um, it's, it's kind of like sous vide cookery by cooking it in an oven, um, setting it at 55 degrees, 60 degrees centigrade and cooking that joint of meat um, for two hours till it's cooked all the way through at 55, 60 degrees centigrade. And it won't overcook because that's the temperature, that's the highest temperature it's going to go to and then taking it out and then searing it up and giving it that lovely kind of crust on it. And the way of do, that way, you're going to, Guarantee that you've got it nice and pink in the middle and you're not ruining it. You've spent some you know, hard-earned money on some incredible beef. Don't mess it up now, okay? Because there's nothing worse. I I think, you know, overcooked meat for me is less of a less of a sin than undercooked. Like for me, if, if I've got a big steak and someone sends it out it's not right and it's blue and it's all chewy, like at least with overcooked you can eat it. For me, like I would rather just, let's just get it, you know, and you can get it right by cooking it in an oven r- low and slow and then searing it up.
3: Yeah, I I was just thinking while you were talking, I I, I don't think sometimes many home cooks know how ridiculously different restaurant cooking is to home cooking. It's just, it's a completely different thing uh, where you've got this, you know, different equipment and specialists and you often tend to do sort of one thing repeatedly rather than lots of things all at the same time. And uh, I think, you know, that advice of you're trying to not mess it up is is a really, really good one. If you buy good meat, I, I think really, if you can find a recipe... And Tom's, of course, are excellent. Other (laughs) recipe books are available. (laughs) Uh, There's
0: loads on BBC bbcgoofood.com.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) They're good. Well done. Uh, But if you could find a recipe that works for you, I would just stick with it forever on the kind of like the the you know the the my granny's recipe principle that if you've got one recipe that works for you for for like a you know a big joint of meat, I would just stick with that forever. I know a small number of people who come to me and they're like, "Oh, what do you think about the sous vide? What do you think about like reverse searing?" And I'm like, "I I never do it. I'm not I'm not a great cook. What I can do." is follow the recipe that I've done 10, 15, 50 times before and do it again. And I I think actually that's how a lot of people cook their meat.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I think we're out of time. Oh, such
2: a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode, Let's Cook Together. See you next time.